0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Last week we looked at the Jesus who is meek and lowly. We looked into the heart of Jesus, but... We talked about the fact that you just can't look at one side of a person and determine who they are. And like the rest of us, there's more than one side to Jesus. And this morning we're going to look at uh, Luke chapter 19 and see another side of Jesus, another side of our Savior. But a little background may be necessary for us to understand exactly what it is that's going on in this particular uh, chapter, in this passage, so uh, if, we're not going to go back and read it. But in Luke chapter nine, verse fifty-one, Luke records for us that Jesus said that he faced, he set his face toward Jerusalem, and that simply means that from Luke chapter nine through the end of uh, till Jesus is crucified, Luke records Jesus's journey back to Jerusalem to be arrested, tried, and crucified, and in chapter nineteen, we are coming to the end of that particular journey. We're coming to the edge of Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, the next thing we see in Luke is the triumphal entry, which is going to happen in just a couple of days from when this particular story that we, uh, this parable that Jesus tells, is given to us. Uh, and so, as we look at this parable, the first thing we need to understand is the reason for the parable and. And that's found in verse 11. But before we break the parable down, let's just read it in its complete setting. Luke 19, verse 11. Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable. Because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and he said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation to them ten minas and said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him. and oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, but his citizens hated him. Hang on just a second. Let me take care of one thing at a time. We'll take care of the microphone. Now, we'll go back and we'll pick up in verse uh, 12 again. Therefore he said, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him, and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was, that when he returned, having received the kingdom, He then commanded these servants, to whom he had given the money, to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to them, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise he said to him, You also be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief, for I feared you, because you are an austere, or a hard, or a harsh man. You collect what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Before we break this parable down in its parts, we need to ask the question, why did Jesus give this parable? Why did Jesus tell his apostles this parable at this time? And verse 11 gives us the answer. Now as they heard these things, he spake another parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. As they arrive on the outskirts of Jerusalem, Jesus takes this opportunity to prepare his disciples and his followers for a couple of things. Number one, he wants to prepare them for their imminent arrival in Jerusalem. They are right on the outskirts, they're going to be there very soon. Uh, when they get to Jerusalem, the disciples are going to face a couple of troubling events and a couple of misleading events. The first one, is the triumphal entry. We talked about that a second ago. Where Jesus comes into Jerusalem. On the back of a colt. They lay the palm leaves down. And they shout Hosanna to God in the highest. And, and they're basically claiming. And proclaiming Jesus. To be their king. And And the apostles and the disciples. Are going to think man this is great. Uh, it's, this is victory. This is what we've been waiting for. Jesus needs to slow them down a little bit. And remind them. That this is not. The final victory. There are still some hurdles to cross. There are still some problems that were going to be faced. So this triumphal entry in many ways would be misleading. But also there will be a misleading crucifixion. Just like the triumphal entry was not the final victory, the crucifixion is not the final defeat, right? We know that. Is everybody with me? We know that that wasn't the final defeat. But put yourself in these disciples' shoes. In a week's time they've seen Jesus declared king and they've also seen Jesus crucified. So they're at the point, oh man, now what do we do? Now what happens? And, and Jesus is trying to prepare them for that. While Jesus understood that a cross had to come before the crown, his disciples had no clue. They, even though Jesus had been telling them that, it just hadn't stuck. Have you ever had your, somebody, your parents, your grandparents, a friend, a boss tell you something and, and you say, I understand, I get it, but it just really didn't sink, sink in? That's kind of what this message, Jesus has told them several times that he is going to be betrayed, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be crucified, and that this had to happen. It's according to scripture, but they just don't get it. But not only was he trying to prepare them for their imminent arrival, He was also trying to prepare them for an unanticipated delay in the kingdom. Did you see what Luke said there in verse 11? His disciples thought that the kingdom of God was coming immediately. They thought that this was it. They thought that Jesus, he's going to set up his earthly kingdom right now. He's going in the triumphal entry just helped to increase that feeling even more. Like, wow, here we go, let's progress, let's let's get this kingdom on the road, let's Let's proclaim Jesus king so we can get rid of Rome and so we can be what God wants us to be with this coming Messiah. After all, they understood the Old Testament passages that the Messiah was going to establish a kingdom in a book forever, right? That's true. Is that correct? That's what Jesus is going to do. It's just not going to happen quite yet. And That's what they were expecting, and Jesus is trying to prepare them for that. So... To help him understand, Jesus tells them about this parable about a man that had to go away to receive a kingdom. And in telling of this parable, he's relating two things. Number one, Jesus has to go away and return. Jesus has to leave this earth for a period of time. And while this language may seem strange to us, it would have been very familiar to his audience there. So if you'll indulge me, we're going to have a little history lesson here. If you don't like history, you can wake up when it's over. I'll wake you up and we'll, we'll start the sermon all over again. But in 39 B.C., Herod the Great, uh, who was a supporter of Mark Antony, uh, the Roman general who was in charge of Palestine at the time, when Mark Antony kind of won the wars, the inter-Roman inner wars that he was fighting to take power uh, as, as an emperor, Herod the Great left Jerusalem and he traveled to Rome to uh, ask the Roman Senate permission to rule back in Palestine. The way this worked was, even though the Romans were very wise, uh, instead of having, even though the, the emperor was the emperor over the whole empire, empire-wide, each area had its own king that reported to uh, <laughs> And our country doesn't work exactly like that. We have a president of the United States, but each state has a governor, right? And in governors, there's mayors, and then in, and in, you get inside a city, there's city managers. There's, there's different levels of uh, supervision, different levels of kingship, if we could use that as a word. Well, the Senate voted to allow Herod to be the king over Palestine, and as a matter of fact, they gave him the title king of the Jews. So Herod traveled from Jerusalem to Rome. He got his kingdom, got the authority to rule, got the right to rule, came back to Judea. And with the Roman military and the Roman authority behind him, he slaughtered all of his enemies to secure his kingdom. And Herod the Great was king over Judea. So see how Herod traveled to get his kingdom, had to go away, he got his right to rule, he came back, he slaughtered his enemies, and he was the king. Well, when Herod the Great died in 4 AD, his son Archelaus became the king. Actually, he died in 4 BC, not 4 AD, I've got the wrong thing in my notes here. But Archelaus took his place and Archelaus was not the leader that his father was. Herod the Great was a very strong leader. He built, uh, he was known for his uh, architecture. He built the the Jewish, the Jews had a basic temple. Uh, Herod took this temple, and it took him like 40-something years to build the whole magnificent temple complex. Uh, he built cities, military cities. He was very well known for his leadership and his, uh, his architectural ability. But when he died, his son was not, his father's king, the people did not like Archelaus, and let me tell you why. While Herod the Great was ruling, he, his son Archelaus, was one of the governors underneath him, and he was over Jerusalem. And oh the first Pentecost, that Archelaus was on in, in charge of Jerusalem, he wanted to set a precedent, so he took three thousand Jews and slaughtered them uh, on Pentecost, on Passover rather. And so, that is why the people didn't like him. They had every right not to like him. But when when Herod the Great died, Archelaus wanted the throne. And so, he too goes to Rome to ask Rome's permission to be king of the Jews. Well, the Jews sent a delegation. Does that sound familiar, what we read in our parable here? They sent a delegation along that followed him all the way there. And they told the the emperor, who was Augustus at the time. He was Octavian before he became uh, the, the emperor, but now he's Augustus Caesar. Uh, he, he said, I want to rule. The people said, we do not want this man to rule over us. But the Senate voted to let Archelaus rule. However, they did not give him the title King of the Jews. They gave that title to Herod the Great. They gave the title Tetriarch to his son Archelaus. So when you read the Gospels, sometimes it will say Herod the Tetrarch. It's talking about Archelaus. That's a different. It's a different name, a different, uh, different title. Archelaus did not have the title king. Basically, the Roman Senate said, if you want to be king, you want that title, you've got to earn it. And you've got to get the people's respect and the people's willingness to follow. Uh, because generally, if the people aren't willing to follow, you're not going to be a very successful king, right? So, Jesus uses very common language to give his parable. Even though we don't understand that, you know, we elect our leaders and that's the way it goes. In this day and age, the king had to go away to get his right to rule. And then he would come back and he would take care of his, uh, his people, so, or his enemies rather. So, the first thing that Jesus was teaching his apostles, or trying to teach them and his followers was that he had to go away. This kingdom wasn't coming right now. It's going to be in the future. It's going to be in a little while. Now, we understand that this kingdom didn't happen immediately, right? We're in 2021, and it still hasn't happened. Jesus still hasn't set up his earthly kingdom, but he will. That time's coming in in the future. But we understand that not only did Jesus have to go away, Jesus is also telling his apostles with this parable that their view of the kingdom was too small. They thought the kingdom was just going to be for the Israelites, right? They thought it was going to be an Israel-only club, that only Israel could be in this king. Everybody else, kingdom. Everybody else, y'all are y'all are just out of luck. It's kind of like when uh, we were growing up, and you know, boys had their little boys club, and and the girls had their little girls club, and. Boys couldn't come into little girls' club, and girls couldn't come into little boys' club. These apostles and Jesus' followers thought that Jesus had an Israel-only kingdom in mind. Jesus was going to have to teach them that Jesus has a much bigger agenda. Jesus' agenda, and aren't you thankful that it's this way, Jesus' agenda was not just Israel. It was not just Judah. It was not just Palestine, but it was worldwide. And before we break down this parable into its parts, there are a couple of things we have to realize if we're going to understand it. First of all, this parable has two audiences. The first audience are the disciples of Jesus that were were traveling with him from from Jericho up to Jerusalem. The second audience that's in this group, mixed in this group, are Jewish spies that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Jewish leaders, had sent to try to trap Jesus, right? Every now and then, one of the apostles will record a question they'll ask to try to trap Jesus. So there are two different groups, two different audiences that Jesus speaks to in this parable. There are also two admonitions given in this parable. One is an admonition to the disciples that Jesus has expectations for his followers. That's one admonition. The second admonition is to the spies that judgment's coming. And to borrow a phrase from, uh, I think it's Star Trek, The Next Generation, that Picard says resistance is futile, that's what Jesus is telling his these spies, these enemies, uh, that, that I'm going to be king, and that resistance is futile. And then finally, there's going to be two accountings. To the disciples of Jesus, there's going to be an accounting of how they used the gifts and opportunities that they had received. And to the others, there will be an accounting of their lives and their decisions that they made. Now, with that backdrop in mind, and I know that we spent quite a bit of time laying some background, but I think it's necessary for us to understand exactly what it is Jesus is talking about. Otherwise, we'll miss the purpose of this parable. So let's look at the responsibilities of being Jesus' servant. If we are going to be Jesus' servant, there are responsibilities that go along with that. Let's look at verses 12 and 13. Therefore, he said, "A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return." So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, "Do business till I come." So here, the disciples thought that Jesus was going to set up his kingdom. He thought that he was going to overthrow the emperor. He thought that there was going to—they thought there was going to be a rebellion. They thought that they were going to be on easy street and all their troubles were going to be over. Jesus is saying, guess what? Y'all's troubles just get started. There's a lot that you guys are going to have to deal with until this kingdom comes, until I come back to set up my kingdom. The master of the parable went away and entrusted his people with money. Jesus is telling his followers and he's telling us, that when he goes away, and he's still away, by the way, he is entrusting us with something very valuable. He is making an investment in us. He also tells us that we have the responsibility to be about doing the Lord's business. We have the responsibility to be about the Lord's business. There in verse uh, 13, when he says, do business till I come, That phrase, do business, this is the only time that it's used in the New Testament. Uh, Some translations say trading. Some translations say manage. What Jesus is saying is, you guys need to be about my business till, till I come. He gives ten servants, each a minor. Now, this parable is very similar to the parable of the talents, right? Over in Matthew, there's some big differences. In the parable of the talents, Jesus gave one man... Ten talents, one man five talents, and one man one talent. Here he gave ten servants, one mina each. A mina is about three months wages. So it's a significant amount of money. But he tells them, you take this money, and you invest it, and you make money while I'm gone. You do business for me. I've got a question for you. Isn't that a pretty cool phrase? To do business for Jesus? Isn't that what we're about? If anybody today asks me why Old New Hope Baptist Church is here, my answer to that is it's for us to do business. It's for us to do Jesus' business. And Jesus' business, and he brings it up in Matthew chapter or Luke chapter 19, verse 10, he said, I came to seek and save the lost. That was, that was Jesus' business. That's the church's business. We're to do business while Jesus is gone. Remember when Jesus was 12 years old, back in Luke chapter 2, and his parents had taken him to Jerusalem. And they traveled, as they were traveling back to Nazareth, they realized Jesus wasn't with them. And you wonder, well, how could you lose your kid on a trip like this? I, and I think I may have shared this with you before, I, I live four doors down from my grandparents when I grew up. And we went to the chain church, so sometimes we would ride, us kids would ride to church with our grandparents, and sometimes we'd ride with our parents, and most generally on Sunday afternoon, we'd go out to eat somewhere in Rivergate, we'd have lunch, and quite often our parents and grandparents would get to the restaurant and realize that they left the kids at church, because one, my parents thought I was with my grandparents, my grandparents thought I was with my parents, and of course there weren't cell phones in those days, so you couldn't just call. They just assumed, and so here they come back to church, and there we were, just kind of <laughs> hanging out till Mom and Dad got back. So I, I, it's easy to. Jesus's parents probably thought he was with Aunt Shirley or Uncle Joe. Well, they realize a few days out that Jesus isn't with them, and so they go back to Jerusalem, and and they find Jesus of all places in the temple, and he's instructing and and. Mary basically says, what are you doing? You scared your father to death. You know how that conversation goes. And in verse 49 of Luke chapter 2, Jesus says, don't you know I have to be about my father's business? Jesus, even at 12 years old, he had priorities. He knew why he was here. He was here to do his father's business. And y'all, as much as I love coming to church and worshiping with all of us, and we sing, and we pray, and we teach and we learn the reason why we are here today is to do business for the Lord to do business for Jesus we have a responsibility every day we're to use the investment Jesus has invested in us now in the parable the nobleman invested Amina three months wages you know what Jesus has invested in us his Holy Spirit He's vested himself in us, and it's our job, while he's gone away, to do business for Jesus. We are open for business. Our question is, how are we spending our day? Are we busy building his kingdom, or are we busy building our kingdom? Are we making much of him, or are we making much of ourselves? Y'all listen to me. If you've been asleep till now, come on back. Every one of us has twenty-four hours in our day, and when I'm preaching to you, I'm preaching to me too, because anything I preach, the Lord's worked on me with it all week. Amen. So I'm going to share and let y'all share in my misery. We all have twenty-four hours in a day, right? Every day, God's going to put people in our path that need to know that. They're hurting, they're scared, they don't know what to do, they don't know where to go, they don't know where to look. And right now we are open for business. But there's coming a day, one day we won't be open for business. One day we'll never unlock the door that opens up another day. Or rather God will not unlock the door that opens up another day. One day, and only God knows when that day will be, God's going to put a sign in our window that says closed. And at that point in time, I'm going to be face to face with the second thing I must accept if I'm a servant of the Lord. I have to accept his responsibility of being a servant, doing business for him. I also have to accept the rewards of being a faithful servant. Verses 15 to 19. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful and very little have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over thy cities. In this parable, Jesus tells his audience that one day the king's going to come back. The nobleman's going to come back. He's going to come back as king. And when he does, there's going to be an audit. And this audit is very straightforward. The faithful servants present what they've accomplished with the investment that the nobleman made in them. As a reward, they're given leadership positions in the kingdom. The one fellow very respectfully says, Lord, your mina. It's not his mina. He recognized it was the Lord's mina. He said, your mina has made ten more minas. And Jesus says, well done, good servant. You're going to rule over ten cities. Same thing happens with the five mina guy. He says, your mina's made five minas. Jesus says, well done, you rule over ten. Five minutes. This parable is symbolic for a very literal, very real event. When Jesus comes back in the clouds for his church the next thing is go- that's going to happen is found in 2 Corinthians 5.10. Look over there. Keep your finger here in Luke 19. Look at 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. 2 Corinthians 5, and verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This judgment seat of Christ, this is for Christians. This judgment is for Christ followers. This is not the judgment, the sheep and the goats, where they're separated into heaven and hell. This judgment is for his servants. The parable that Jesus gives in Luke 19, that is his servants. They are his followers. They are the ones that were supporting this nobleman. We are followers of Jesus. At the rapture, when God comes back to rapture his church, We're going to face the judgment seat of Christ. And it's not going to be for heaven or hell. That's already already determined And we trust Jesus as our Savior. If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior and you follow him as your Lord, your eternal destiny is set. You're going to heaven. You're going to spend eternity with him. What is not set is what will you carry with you into eternity. And what determines that is the work that we do for Jesus. The work that we do doing business, he doesn't give us a mina, he gives us a Holy Spirit. And do we allow the Holy Spirit to fill us and work through us and in us to bear fruit for Jesus Christ? These are those things that we are going to take into eternity. When Christians face the Lord in judgment, the Lord, the nobleman is going to be asking an account. What did you do with my mina? What did you do with my Holy Spirit? And if we have been found faithful, productive servants, if we've proven to be faithful, we've proven to be productive, then the Lord will reward us with leadership positions in the millennial kingdom. You realize that? Did you realize the work that we do right now in the church age in a large part determines the work we're going to do in the millennial kingdom? How do I know that? Let me show you I'm not making this up. Look at Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2:25 to 27. Now to you I say and to the rest in Thyatira As many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on to you no other burden. But hold fast what you have till you come. In other words, be productive. And to he who overcomes, to he who is productive and keeps my works, keeps working for me until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. See that? Jesus says that Christians that do his work, they're productive, they're going to be in leadership positions In the millennial kingdom. But the New Testament isn't finished with that. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 12. If we endure, and that word is endure, if we're faithful, if we're productive. If we endure, we shall also what? Reign with him. So when when's that talking about? It's talking about in his millennial kingdom. Let me give you one more. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 2 and 3. I like hearing those Bible pages turn. That's pretty cool. You all are reading with me. I appreciate that. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? This judge, word judge is also could be translated rule. Do you not know that the saints will judge or rule the world? And if the world will be judged or ruled by you, are you unworthy to judge or rule the smallest matter's? Look at this in verse 3. Do you not know how much more we shall judge or rule angels? So not only will faithful, productive church members be rulers over the people in the millennial kingdom, will also be rulers over the angels. Isn't that pretty cool? Did y'all know that was there? That's kind of neat, isn't it? You see, we have responsibilities to be productive for Jesus in the kingdom. He's invested his Holy Spirit in us. And Jesus says, if you prove yourself productive, and what's nice is he doesn't tell us, he doesn't define productive. Because different people with different talents, with different gifts, are going to produce different results, right? There are pastors that pastor huge churches. There are pastors that pastor small churches. There are Christians that don't pastor any church, but they're all about doing kingdom work every day. Amen? Amen. Jesus said, just be faithful. He says if you'll prove yourself faithful with what you have here on earth when you face me in judgment it's not a heaven or hell judgment. It's a productive or unproductive judgment, right? What have you done with what Jesus has invested in you? In the New Testament when you read about judgment referring to Christians it's a judgment of rewards and leadership that's under consideration not judgment of heaven or hell, judgment of, of, of where we're going with salvation. But as we go back to Luke 19, we also have to realize the reality of unproductive servants. Verse 20, Luke 19, verse 20. Then another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief, for I feared you because you are an austere or a hard or a harsh man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Upon his return, not only did the nobleman find productive, faithful servants, he also found unproductive servants. Now, we know these folks are servants because Jesus calls them both servants, right? And he makes a clear distinction between his followers And those that rejected them. Verse 14 makes that distinction. And verse 27. We'll we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. So Jesus doesn't call them outsiders. He doesn't call them his enemies. He calls them his servants. Now these servants. I think they're in heaven with Jesus. Remember what we said a minute ago. We said that when we trust Jesus as our savior. The salvation question is settled. The eternity question is settled. Where we will be in eternity. The only thing that's left to be determined is what we'll take with us into into eternity. Now, one more passage outside of this parable. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul explains this perfectly in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And let's start reading at verse 10. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 10. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. In other words, the only foundation that there is to build on is Jesus, right? These are Christian people. They have the foundation of Jesus. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. That's the only thing we've got to build is on Jesus, Right? Okay, we get in verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day, that's the judgment day, this day we're talking about in this parable here, the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. For the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive an award. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. Now watch this. But he himself will be saved, yet through fire. The salvation question settled, right? He himself is going to be saved. You say, well, what's burned up? Let me try to explain this. Each of us every day are open for business, right? We're going to do business. We're either going to do business for ourselves or we're going to do business for Jesus Christ. And we're going to keep on doing business till either we die or the Lord comes back. And when the Lord comes back, he's going to test our business. And if our foundation, or if our business has been about gold and silver and precious stone, if it's stuff that the judgment won't eat up, remember when Jesus says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth doesn't corrupt, where where rust doesn't mess it up, where thieves won't steal it, it survives judgment. It's eternal in nature. You go carry that with you, just like the minas. If you've been faithful, God's going to say you've been. Jesus is going to say you've been faithful in little. Now you be faithful in much. If we've been busy building our kingdom, our reputation, our stuff. We can't take that with us. It burns up. Now we're going to be there. Paul says he'll be saved. But it's like you've gone through the fire. It's like if you lose everything in your house in a fire. You're okay. You lived through it but you lost everything in the fire. That's what judgment's going to be. And I don't want to make this an end time sermon. Although that's what the parable's about. That's a whole other message. I've already gone over a little bit this morning. But I just want us to understand a few things. Jesus has gone away to set up his kingdom. He's coming back with the right to rule. We'll talk more about that here in just a second. As Christians, we are either going to be busy about his business or we're going to be busy about our business. If we've been busy about his business, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, Jesus is going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And he's going to reward us on that side of eternity. If we carry stuff with us, if we've been busy about our stuff, and we haven't been as faithful as we should have been with Jesus' stuff, we're not going to have those rewards to carry with us into the next kingdom, or into the millennial kingdom. Does that make sense? Uh, we can explain that a little bit more. I know it's a little complicated. But I just want you to understand that once you're saved, you're always saved. Jesus isn't talking about losing their salvation. But that brings us very quickly, I've already gone over a little bit this morning, I apologize. Everybody okay with me still? All right, let's wrap this up back in Luke 19. Just like there's a reality and a reward of the productive servants, the reality is some servants are unproductive. We also understand, according to chapter 19, verse 14, that some are going to reject Jesus. But his citizens hated it. And sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man reign over us. Now specifically in this parable, Jesus is talking about the Jewish leadership, right? You know, they're the ones that have said, we're we're not going to accept Jesus. We don't want him to rule over us. He's taking away our leadership positions. In reality, there's going to be people that don't want Jesus to rule. This verse, 14, is taken right out of the Jerusalem Gazette. It's the same thing that happened with Archelaus. They sent a delegation saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. Jesus says, there's going to be some that are going to be that way. And while this delegation does rule to them, let's come forward to end times. There are going to be people in this world that say, I don't want Jesus to rule over me. Not me, I'm going to be my own king. I submit to nobody. I don't get on my knee for anybody. I'm not going to submit. I reject him. I don't want this man to rule over me. They do not want, they refuse to name Jesus their Savior and Lord. And that leads us to verse 27. We saw what happened to the productive servants that are rewarded, right? What happens to the unproductive servant? They had their stuff taken away. They entered the kingdom with nothing. But what about the rejecters, verse 30, 27? But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them or slaughter them before me. Now here's where we get to the other side of the Savior. There's a lot of people that love the mercy and the grace and the meekness and gentleness of the Lord, but they don't much like this Jesus, right? Jesus says there's coming a time that I'm coming back. And when I come back, I'm going to reward my faithful." but I'm going to slaughter my enemies. That's talking about judgment Day into the lake of fire, right? That's in Revelation as well. But let me let you think of something this morning. If we eliminate the necessity of punishing sin with hell, if we say, well, that's that's just, a loving God wouldn't do that. A loving God wouldn't, wouldn't send people to hell. A loving God wouldn't let people go to hell. Let me tell you what. If a loving God doesn't punish sin, then there was no necessity for the cross. There are two sides. The book of Romans says, Behold the goodness and severity of God. We don't hear a lot of sermons on the severity part of God anymore. God loves people, and he does. Jesus loves people, and he does. There's some people in our community that are desperate to know that Jesus loves them. But they also need to know the truth. That if they reject Jesus, there's a time that he's coming The first time he came as suffering servant. He came as the meek and lowly Jesus. He came as the Lamb of God. Y'all, when he comes back, that Lamb stuff's over. He's coming back as judge. He's coming back as king. Where are you in this story? Did you know that all of us are in this parable today. You are either a faithful servant, an unproductive servant, or you're a rejector who's rejected Jesus. Can I let you in on a secret? Philippians chapter 2 verse 10 says, There's coming a time where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The only question is, what side of eternity is that going going to be for you? You may reject Jesus as Lord right now, but one day you'll acknowledge him as Savior and Lord. Your knee will bow. But if you wait to the other side of eternity, it's going to be too late. Because Jesus says, you bring my enemies. They recognize he's the king. They recognize he has authority over them, and he slaughters them. He sends them to hell. Now, how do you say, well, how do I determine which group I'm in? There's one simple question to ask yourself. Will you today have Jesus rule over you? Will you put him on the throne of your life? Because I've said this before and I'll say it again. There's only two people that can be on the throne of your life, either Jesus or you. And one day you will give up the seat on your throne. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for loving us. And thank you for this message this morning of the Menas. And I pray that you would have your Holy Spirit examine our hearts this morning. And Peel back our hearts like a layer of an onion, Father, and show us and reveal to us where we are when it comes to our relationship with you. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will convict us this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit will teach us and show us and guide us. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us the conviction to change those things in our lives that need to be changed. So that we face, when we sit at the judgment seat of Christ, and we face Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ, we can all hear, well done, good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name, amen.